Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, last week we had a sermon about repentance. And I talked about a continuum between, on the one hand, people who really felt their sin deeply and, and were pained by it. And on the other hand, people who barely felt their sin at all. In fact, I used a term that made some of you chuckle. Uh, I called it the car wash mentality. That, that people will sin during the week with the full thought that their religion is, is such that they go to church on Sunday, they get all better, that allows them to go and do whatever they want. Now, I'd like for you to think about people who have the car wash mentality and I don't think you have to imagine too much because probably we've all had it at some degree. Is that really worthy of what Jesus has done for us? Not at all, right? That's what we call cheap grace. You, you make what Jesus did, his incarnation, his life, his suffering, his passion week especially, his being forsaken by his Father, and the division of the Trinity. Things that, you know, we can't even wrap our minds around. Such great cost. And when you got the car wash mentality, you treat it as nothing. Just cheap. Today, our readings make us think about what is a worthy response. Now, I want to be very careful about that term. Nobody's worthy of what Jesus did. He did it out of love. He did it because it was the Father's will. He did it because he wants us. But still you can say, there is a way to live. There is a way to respond to that that at least shows that you get it. That shows some degree of honor for what Christ has done. And so today we're going to quickly go through all three readings and see examples of what definitely not to do and some other examples of what to do to live a life worthy of Christ. Let's start with what not to do. Look at the Old Testament reading that we got there. Isaiah chapter 1. It starts out, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of God, you people of Gomorrah. In case you don't know, Sodom and Gomorrah was 1,500 years before this. It's been torched a long time, so this is not spoken to the leaders of Sodom and Gomorrah. It is spoken to the leaders of Israel and the people at the time of Isaiah. And when it starts out calling you Sodom and Gomorrah, guess what? This is not going to be complimentary. You know, he's going to be coming down on you and coming down hard. Let me give you an idea of what, what life was like at that time. You know, it, it's not like Israel didn't use the temple. They brought sacrifices, probably following pretty closely Levitical law. They celebrated the holidays, just like it's laid out in Leviticus. Yet, it was more of a veneer. 
They had pagan temples right nearby. A person could go into the temple of God and trot across the street and go to a pagan temple. And it was all done to kind of cover your bases or to get luck from whatever God was going to work for you. In some respects, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, but, but it is sort of like Hinduism. You kind of go to the gods and give them the sacrifices that you want because mostly you want them to give you good luck and prosperity. That's, that's the guts of it. Well, it's very much that way in Israel at that time. On top of that, if that wasn't bad enough, there was no justice. The, the courts and the leaders were all corrupt. People who were poor or politically weak were just victimized. There was a lot of crime, kind of more like white collarish crime. And, and it ran deep. And people were not repentant. Yes, they had the title of being the people of God. And God himself viewed them as the people of God. But man, they did not honor that and he was not pleased. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you appear before me, who has asked this of you? This trampling of your courts. Stop bringing meaningless sacrifices. Your incense, incense is detestable to me. A little bit lower, my soul hates it. They have become a burden to me. Man, talk about strong language out of the mouth of God. That's bad. Moving it forward in history a little bit, just a little of the history around Martin Luther's time. Does it all that different? I mean, there was a lot of religious life, a lot. But a lot of it was sort of mechanistic and done for cash. And it's just the kind of thing to really frost God. And the gospel, the thing, the powerful thing that God had paid so much for was now obscured. Yeah, they talked about Jesus crucified, but, but didn't look to Jesus crucified as the sacrifice, the only sacrifice for sin. And was people were people being saved? I don't I don't know. I could certainly understand if the answer was no. Nobody. And that's what we gotta look out for today. Empty religion cooperative with sinful activity. You can't fool God. He, he sees that stuff. So that is not worthy of him. But, you know, if you look at this reading, you think you're going to hear God crashing down and say, I'm going to destroy you. Yet still, in chapter 1 anyway, at the end of this reading, it says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, 
They shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. God was not rushing off to condemn these people. He was trying to be as patient as he could. He was pleading for them for, for, to seek forgiveness. If you proceed on in Isaiah, that is not so. By chapter 6, it is not so. They had progressed to the point where God said, be hearing but never hear, be seeing but never see. A segment, at least, of that population was going to be hardened, and permanently so, in generation over generation, even. And the rest of the people were going to go off into exile. That's where they got themselves. So let's go to a better example. They're a terrible example. Go to the gospel lesson. Luke 19, you got the story of little Zacchaeus. First of all, we, we feel empathy for him because he's a short guy, right? But in, in case you don't know, this is what made a tax collector, quote-unquote tax collector, so onerous before the people. It's not that Israel didn't like paying taxes for legitimate government services. I mean, I'm sure they didn't like it, but they understood the purpose, right? But tax collectors like Zacchaeus weren't collecting for the local government. They, they were collecting for the Romans. They were collecting for an occupying government. And so they were seen very much as traitors. Then on top of it, that set of people were well known because the Roman officials kind of encouraged it, even supported it. They were well known for exacting more taxes than really the law the law asked. So they became rich at extorting people. People would cough it up rather than get their head beat in by a Roman soldier. And so tax collectors became sort of synonymous with any sort of sinful behavior. And I guess you could say, if you're willing to be that kind of tax collector, you probably had other things that were going amiss as, as you lived for money and pleasure and were a traitor to your country. And that was Zacchaeus's case. Yet something had happened to Zacchaeus that we don't really get to see, but you can certainly infer that it's there. Zacchaeus must have heard about Jesus and understood that he was something special. Perhaps even understood that there was hope for forgiveness with Jesus, but yet probably Zacchaeus saw that as hope for other people, not for me. And yet he wanted to see the guy, even if it was from a distance. Being short, he couldn't just see over top of the crowd, so he climbs up in the tree. And Jesus sees him, and he already knows him and knows his heart, and says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to come to your house tonight. Because Jesus, you know, he states his purpose. He's come to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus knew that about himself, that he was lost. And then comes this statement of response. Now, I don't know what else Jesus said to Zacchaeus. But finally, at some point, when Zacchaeus knew that there was still hope for him, that there was forgiveness in Christ, 
he, he, he says, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. I always wince at Zacchaeus' math here. You know, I, I don't know how much of his wealth came from extortion, but if you give away half and then four times as much, you're going to get past zero pretty quick, right? So I don't know if this is big talk or if this is you know legitimate numbers, but the point is this. Zacchaeus could have held on to his money, but he really wanted to respond. He was so grateful to have a second chance. And and in that, he shows uh, a worthy response. He didn't just say, thank you, Jesus. He knew he could do something, and he did it. Then the Thessalonians, they end up being our main text today and probably our best example. They are a congregation that gets really commended. So one thing to note, it is possible to be commended. (laughs) Thessalonians are sinners, to be sure, everybody is. But as a group, they are responding the way God hopes. And, and they are acknowledged for that. That's not true of every congregation noted in the Bible. The Galatians were a train wreck. They get ripped from sentence number one. Uh, the Corinthians were pretty bad shape. They get a little bit of attaboy at the beginning, and then it's like, but. And there's a whole long list of things that, that they got wrong. You go to the letters to the churches in Revelation, and all but one gets some sort of reprimand from Jesus. One doesn't. And you wonder, what would Jesus say of us? I hope it would be a commendation. I hope if there was a but, I hope it would be a smaller one. (laughs) Thessalonians, they're doing well. Paul says, I ought always to thank God for you, rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Here's a step in a worthy response. Greater and greater faith in what God says he will do. And to really show that, you got to be stepping out and doing the works of God, and seeing that God works through you. For their faith is growing more and more. And how do they feel internally about each other? They're not some divisive, petty congregation. They love each other. That's what we should do. We should love each other. And they're doing it all in an atmosphere of suffering, it says. I mean, we don't quite have that. But they're broadly persecuted in their society, and and, and yet, you know, that, that doesn't make them back down. That makes them stand up. And then Paul says later, With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may count you worthy of his calling, 
here you got to watch how this word worthy is being used. They've already been given faith. They've already been called to be the people of God. And yet Paul says, down the line, we hope that God can considers you worthy of your calling. Let's be clear here. Being worthy of it, responding worthily, does not earn it. You don't merit God's love, God's salvation by being worthy. Here, Paul is just saying, you know, in the end, when, when God looks at you at Judgment Day, I pray that he still looks at you and says, you know, I'm, I'm pleased. There's sinners that I saved, but, but they responded as best as a sinner can do. And I consider them worthy, worthy of my honor, worthy of higher reward. That's what Paul is saying here. And he says, right the last line, verse 12, we pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. When we act in a worthy fashion, the Lord Jesus is glorified in us. How so? People can look then at, at, at us and see that we're people who care about other people, who love other people, who are willing to get off our couch and leave our house and do things and give of our time and, and give of whatever we have, our, our skills, our money, for the well-being of others in the long run. They could see Christ in us. And I pray that this that's what we are as a congregation. The people can see Christ in us, wherever we are. Whether we're out in the community as a group somewhere doing something, or whether the community is here in, in our walls, or whether you as an individual are, are doing your job or showing some kindness to your neighbor, that, that people would say, you know what? They're a great person. What's unusual about them? And what's unusual about you is Christ in you. And if they know that, and, and certainly you should say who you are, don't be ashamed of saying who you are, then Christ is glorified in you. And the day will come when you will stand before the Lord. You will be there despite sin and unworthiness. You will be there because of grace. But maybe you will also hear, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. Maybe you will also hear, you responded worthy of the gift that I gave you. Let us aspire to that. May the Holy Spirit within us help us to be great examples of being worthy of the gospel extended to us. In Jesus' name, amen.